and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Sri Lanka is experiencing one of its greatest political and economic crises of its existence, with massive riots sparked by an absolute collapse in the country's economy. Some economists predict that Sri Lanka will be bankrupt by the end of next year. The crisis has deposed at least one president with new calls for a regime change. On today's program, we conclude our coverage of Sri Lanka. My guest is Samanthi Gunawadhana. We're going to pick up on um, this IMF rescue package. I mean, obviously, we know that IMF loans come with austerity measures and surely the Sri Lankan people could not tolerate or live through even further austerity compared to what they're currently um, living through. What what do people know of what the consequences of an IMF loan are going to be and how is the country tolerating this? I don't have the most recent version of the, um, the package that is proposed. What I do know based on what the, the comments um, that have been made by personnel representing the IMF is that they um, have very explicitly said that they want to provide for greater social protection, right? Now, in the in the in the old days, I guess you could say, um, of IMF policies, let's say in the eighties and nineties, they would have really said, "You just got to cut back on all your welfare measures, and you've got to, um, you know, you've got to reduce the the public sector. You've got to let the private sector and the market take care of all of this." They have kind of scaled back on that rhetoric, um, mainly because I think you can see a lot of their programs have not been very successful, right? Um, and austerity is not just now limited to the global south. Austerity programs are recommended everywhere around the world. Um, what happened after the Greek economic crisis, for example, um, is, is an example of, of that. But so what, and, and the other thing about this IMF program is that um, it's not really going to cover all of Sri Lanka's debt, right? So I think the provisional agreement is for about a $2.9 billion loan, kind of like a little kick or an adjustment to help um, Sri Lanka kind of restructure its debt, um, negotiate with with its um, creditors, um, and hopefully it's designed to create a platform where creditors and big players, big political players like China, for example, can come on board and, and have a discussion about the debt while in the short term kind of addressing some of the um, economic issues. So this, this loan is going to be spread over four years. It's going it's designed to kind of increase government revenue, um, restructure the debt and consolidate some of that debt, what they call fiscal fiscal consolidation. They're also looking at the, the pricing for fuel and electricity. Um, they're going to reform some aspects of the central bank. They also want to help de- um, rebuild depleted foreign reserves, right? So get the foreign currency back into the um, into the into the country. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing is that they say they are going to hike social spending. I don't know what that looks like yet. It's it's been really um, opaque, I guess. And I I don't think there's been kind of a direct answer other than kind of increasing some welfare payments. But welfare payments alone, when you, um, they're they're short-term, 
solutions, aren't they? You can give someone an increase in a social welfare payment or a one-off payment even that can help them buy a basket of groceries and keep them from starving, but it's not going to address the fundamental aspects that underlie the economic structure. So they are also, I suspect, going to look at austerity measures like, you know, state-owned enterprises, maybe closing some of them, cutting jobs. I think privatisation is definitely on the table, but I'm not sure what direction that is going to um, take. What would be catastrophic, I think, for Sri Lanka is if they were to implement policies that target things like the health sector um, and the education sector and um, attempt to privatise elements of that. Because the health sector itself, Sri Lanka actually has had a very, quite a good public health sector um, in the region and for countries of that, you know, um, income range, let's say. Everyone was kind of guaranteed health care. Um, but we, you know, and this is not, um, it, it's not just about Sri Lanka, it's happening all over the world, including in Australia right now. But I think if you are to privatise more of the health sector or even of the education sector, those two fundamental areas are going to impact people's life chances. And I think keep in mind that through the pandemic, through this crisis, children have been dropping out of school. They've been dropping out. And most children who drop out of school in these types of crises never go back. And so you have... Actually, I think in Sri Lanka, I read, and I need to verify this, but I will put this out there that more boys are dropping out of school at the moment um, and they're going into unskilled, you know, type of work. The other area where they are um, encouraging kind of low-income low people and low-income families to, to look at is migration. And migration is such a contested um, issue because the people who are migrating out and the people they want to encourage to migrate out of the country are people who are already from poverty-stricken areas. They are people who have no other options or no sustainable options at least within their immediate vicinity. Um, keep in mind, for example, if you look at agriculture, if you recall what I said about the, the introduction of organic fertilisers, now, that ban was subsequently reversed this year and people can use synthetic fertilisers, but many farmers have just chosen not to because the costs of inputs are so high. Inflationary rates are through the roof. A loaf of bread was 60 rupees two years ago. It's now 260 rupees, you know? So that includes wow, the cost Wow, that people. is massive. It is massive. It's. I actually don't know how people particularly on the low-income end of things, are surviving. People who have connections with wealthier families or um, maybe they have relatives overseas who can send them money are okay. I've actually had people, so there are certain workers that I've kept in contact with since I did my PhD, um, you know, more than 10, 15 years ago. I keep in contact with a lot of those workers and the first time in, in their lives and in our relationship, they've asked me for some support. They've never done that before. 
of course I do support them and it's just it just struck me that in all of those years almost 20 years in some case these are working class women who worked in garment factories who may continue to work in garment factories or they may have gone back to their villages have very shyly and reluctantly explained their situation for me and kind of left you know they they actually still never asked me directly but they are asking for a little bit of support because they just can't survive. You, you talked about um, the crackdown on the protesters, the use of arbitrary mm-hmm. detention, really um, unjust and inhumane questioning styles. We have seen this incredible police and military brutality and repression against protesters who are largely unarmed is the other thing you know the pre- mm. you mentioned earlier the protesters are really committed to saying that this is a, a peaceful peaceful protest what can you tell us about um the the use of police and military brutality and also is the time for peace over is it time for armed struggle i think the youth of sri lanka who've led this movement are very reluctant because I'm not I'm I don't know what will happen in the future. But what we've seen from the youth movements, having lived through a war, having lived with the memory of their parents or their siblings' memories of the war, I wouldn't say that there is a current appetite for it. But who I mean, you know, if you look at the conflicts in Sri Lanka, it's because of these types of situations there's been some sort of an economic crisis a deep economic crisis for example the the 71 um uprising of youth single primarily Sinhalese youth rural Sinhalese youth and mainly men but lots of women were involved that was the JVP um uprising um you know there's a lot of economic discontent at that time and guess what the government did crack down on them really really hard um and it suppressed them for a little bit and then you have the the Tamil uprising and separatist movement because of the the discrimination and the violence and the state endorsed. I would say at point state sponsored violence in in terms of the nineteen eighty three riots against Tamil people. Um, so what we see here is a generation, a all the generations that are alive today in Sri Lanka have lived through several rounds of violence, state-sponsored violence, separatist violence, um, killings and so on. I uh, And then you have kind of random, these random terror attacks as well, as I mentioned, the Easter Island bombings. I don't think that anyone has an appetite to go back to war or to take up armed struggle right now. But um, the state is coming down. They're using legislation and laws that were designed during the war to, you know, apparently to keep the peace. Um, we all know that's <laughs> it's kind of a contradiction. Um, and I think what I find really problematic in all of this as, a, as an outsider, because, I, you know, I haven't, I'm not in Sri Lanka, but as an observer and outsider, the state and these leaders are cracking down on youth who could be the future leaders, who could have a different vision of what it is to be a leader in Sri Lanka, of 
justice. You know, they have a different vision of what justice is and they have a different vision of of their society and fairness and equity in that society. Um, I suspect actually that's why the government is cracking down on the leaders within the Aragalia because they do pose a very credible threat. And they, you know, again, they did it through nonviolent means, right? They they weren't out there with, they, were, they didn't even throw, you know, they didn't have any stones, they didn't have sticks. They basically sat there, um, they marched, they did take over the president's house at the end. I'm sure people have seen that footage of them swimming in the pool and all of that. But they have been using these nonviolent means and I think they exist, you know, we all know that people in power, they do find that threatening when there are these kind of, there's a groundswell of movement. Um, but, again, I can't predict what will happen in the future. Well, I'm about to ask you to. I mean, <laughs> we, we are at, we're at such a, a apex of crisis for the people of Sri Lanka, um, the economic crisis leading up to what is now a global inflation crisis and more than likely a global recession. So an economic crisis conflated with a political crisis conflated with just the sheer level of poverty and distress and disease amongst the Sri Lankan people what do you I mean it can't just sit at this impasse and at this level of crisis permanently what do you think will be the breaking point how do you think what is the way out for me I mean the way out as I would like to see it and as as many of the the community groups and activists that I do keep in touch see it and see the path and the way out is very different, I think, from the way out um, perhaps of of the IMF and even, you know, um, well-meaning public servants and public, you know, (laughs) organisations. So if I could pause and just kind of, I don't want to speak for the, the activists and the people who have been on the front lines in, in Sri Lanka. Um, but the way out for them is to rethink everything, right? So rethink governance, um, rethink the the parliamentary system where um, partic- there's also this other conversation that's happening in Sri Lanka around the constitution and the powers of the president. So to strip back the powers of the president, that would be a first step in terms of the governance, right, to rethink the constitution and how the um, governing bodies and um, positions of power within that are set up. So to devolve and get rid of a lot of the powers of the executive presidency, that would be one. The second thing is to envision an economic system that is not so, uh, so reliant on exploiting class, race, or ethnic and gender divisions. Because if you look at how the Sri Lankan economy is structured at the moment and the most profitable sectors in the economy, at least the profitable export sectors, there's three. One is garments, which, you know, the majority of the workers in that sector continue to be women and poor women in really dire circumstances with very little social support outside of the factories. The second are the estate, the tea estate workers, um, 
who have been living in, I would say, conditions of almost indentured poverty and slavery almost for the last 100, 200 years. Um, there was a call before the pandemic to raise their daily wage from about 600 to 700 rupees to 1,000 rupees. That would have been about $10 a day before the um, pandemic, before inflation. They still haven't had that wage rise and they're still they're now trapped in this situation where inflation has gone through the roof, right? Um, if anyone wants to learn about the Sri Lankan tea industry, I really encourage them to look it up and look at where your cup of Dilma is coming from. And again, the work, the majority of workers are women. The third, I mentioned this in passing before, is the export earnings from the migration, the diaspora, not the diaspora, the temporary migrant laborers. These are men and women who've migrated overseas to work in really precarious conditions in things like construction, um, their nannies, their housemaids in private households, they're working in the seafood sector um, and so on in places around the country, around the world with very minimal legal protection. They're sending back remittances, they're, they're having to often undergo really strenuous conditions. And I'll note that one of the things that happened, and I'm sorry to bring this back to migration again, um, again, Giselle, but I think this is really important and it really shows the desperation of both the people and the government of Sri Lanka. Um, one is that in the um, when Sri Lanka started to um, kind of export women in a way to work as um, domestics, you know, domestic maids or nannies, mainly domestic workers, actually, because there's a global hierarchy, a racial hierarchy on who is going to be hired as a nanny versus a maid. That's a whole other story. But um, so Sri Lanka was doing this in the 1980s and 1990s. And they, the, what happened was there were lots of horrific abuses that were being reported in the, in the households where the maids were working. And so what happened was in around 2011, 2012, they started to rethink um, and think about how they could address this problem. They had very little control over the working conditions in the labour receiving countries. So what they did was they put a ban on women with children under five migrating. And they had this thing where you had to get what's called a family report. So the local district government officer would go and interview the father, they would interview the neighbours and see if it was safe for the women to make this autonomous decision to migrate overseas, right? Um, so they they weren't allowed to migrate if it um, if it was felt that the women had, you know, if the women had children under five, the officers were obligated not to recommend them for migration regardless of if there were care arrangements in place and so on. Women over the age of 55 couldn't migrate. Um, those travelling to Saudi Arabia had to be at least 25 years of age and other kind of Middle Eastern countries in particular where a lot of the abuse occurred, they had to have an age limit of about 23 and above. And all countries, all migrants going to any country, the women had to be at least 21 years of age. Well, guess what happened? Guess what happened this year? They removed that protection. They, they, it was a very gendered and contested policy to start off with. Um, this whole family background report because it implied that women couldn't make their own decisions about whether to migrate. Right? You had to go talk to the neighbours to find out if it was okay. 
But what did they do? Where did that concern go? Um, where was the protection concerns of the state in this moment of crisis? They removed those restrictions. And now women, yeah, women with young children, women, I think they've dropped the age. They've dropped it from like the 25 to 23 to 21. I suspect it's actually even further. Um, but they get, they're letting women with young children, you know, migrate again um, to work as domestic workers in places with very little um, labour laws, little protection. They're going to work in private households in very... Um, fraught countries with little human rights records to start with. And I think that's really indicative of what's what the country is facing at the moment is because in times of crisis, the most vulnerable get thrown under the bus. Um, they're being sent overseas because they need the income and they're gladly signing up to do so. Um, but who knows? what happened to the concerns of about human rights. So you asked me to predict what would happen. I think what we're going to be seeing, as we're seeing in a number of different countries around the world, is a real rollback. Not, I, I don't want to say human rights, but at least the implementation. We're, we are currently seeing a rollback of the implementation and the respect for human rights and national laws and legislation, and it will have very gendered but also ethnic racial um, repercussions for people, like particularly for, for women like those young women who are migrating in Sri Lanka. Oh, my gosh, Samantha, that, that's a, a lot for <laughs> the Sri Lankan people to be dealing with and carrying. I mean, thank you so much for sharing it all. I guess my last question in closing, and again, thank you so much for your time and your insight and sharing your knowledge with us. If any of our listeners wanted to offer any form of solidarity, what, what is most needed right now? People need money for food. And I think um, that is probably the thing that most people are struggling with, particularly vulnerable communities, but also maybe educational support for their children. If I could, I would encourage people to think about the short term and the long term. What can you do in the short term? The short term is yes, donate um, if you can to any reputable organisation. And I can provide you with a list, um, Giselle, of organisations that are basically setting up community kitchens because there are a bunch of community kitchens now unfolding around the country because people cannot afford two, let alone three meals a day. They're happy if they get one. Um, and the other thing is there are programs now set up to provide meals for children in school. So um, I, that's another way. But also think of I'm thinking of the long term and I think what will help people in the long term, we need to keep children in school. Um, if we don't, that is going to be a really terrible setback. So there are organisations that support um, children children in, uh, attending school um, and they just need basics. And it, it's, it's really old-fashioned philanthropy, you know, like basics, sponsor a child's school pack <laughs> for a day, for a, a year. That would help people, I think. There's also the health stuff, like you can donate to the hospitals, which are um, low on medical supplies and so on. One of my friends um, 
came back. She was on a kind of a a, a donate um, a, a tour with an Australian organisation that was distributing medical supplies in Sri Lanka. She went to the Lady Ridgeway Sri Lanka, um, Children's Hospital, and what she said to me was really struck stuck with me. It's not because there's there's so much capability, so much um, uh, talent, so much dedication in the staff. But there's one, you know, six beds for a waiting list of like 200 children and the medicines are low and so on. I always think that this isn't just about Sri Lanka. It's actually about what's happening everywhere at the moment. And so if you have the means to support, um, it, it is really lovely if people can support Sri Lanka. But I think there are so many crises at the moment, you know, like where do you turn Samantha, we'll get those details and I'll put them up on um, Accent of Women's page so that uh, people can follow that up. But again, thank you so much for your time. Was there anything you wanted to add? I would just add that, you know, I think Sri Lankans are really resilient, as people keep saying, but you can't depend on people's resilience to, to see a crisis through. There has to be, you know, wholesale transformation and we need to have new leadership. That's that's the that's the basics. I think in Sri Lanka there's a real crisis of leadership and governance. And that's all we've got time for on today's program. That was Samantha Gunawadana, Sri Lankan academic based in Melbourne. If you missed part one of this series, go check out our podcast, which you can find at 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kunjeri. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.